I grew up with our youth group. We'd go to Lake Powell every year in the summer. It's like, yes, Saturday, Friday, Saturday here in town every day, right? And the only way you stay cool is to stay in the water. We'd camp out on the beach, uh, just in the gritty, like, red sand, and uh, just hang out and have a lot of fun as high schoolers. Um, and we'd, we'd water ski sometimes, or we had this giant thing, and I'm trying to remember what we called it. It was this, I think we called it the hot dog, because it was like, 10, 12 feet long, and you could put six or eight people on it all in a line, and you'd tow it around on a boat. And of course, with youth group trips, uh, it'd get crazier and crazier, and you'd make your own wake, right? And then you'd jump it and bounce around, and uh, people would be flying everywhere. And it was a lot of fun until my friend Tony hit his head. And all of a sudden, in an instant, um, the fun shifted, right? And, And it got very serious. In fact, it was very serious. They ended up uh, having to call a helicopter and flight for life him out of there um, because it was very serious. And I'm sure if we went around the room, every one of us would have a moment like that or some, uh, several moments like that where, where life just went from fun and games, sort of just hanging out, not really thinking about things too much, to it got real serious real quick. And you realize you're in a defining moment. Now, sometimes life is... Um, Life is busy, right? And we just get so preoccupied and busy, and we're running kids everywhere, and we're trying to get to classes and get to work and all these things, and, you know, maybe catch up on, you know, binge-watching that, you know, that Netflix series and all that, and we're just busy, and we're crazy, and life's that way, right? And I think a lot of times in those moments, we end up missing some of the defining moments where God has actually positioned us and inviting us into his purposes and into his plans. And if we're not careful, if we don't listen to the Holy Spirit in those moments and and follow him, we're at risk of actually missing some of those defining moments in life where the way we choose and the what, how we respond will actually make a very big impact. And that's the moment that we come to in Esther chapter 4. And if you want to turn over there, if you have your Bibles, otherwise it'll be on the screen behind me as well. But I'll catch you up real quick in case uh, you're joining us for the first time or for the first time in a while. Uh, in Esther chapter 4, to, to remind you, we're in the year 475 or so B.C. in the Persian Empire in the town of Susa, which is near the modern-day border of Iraq and Iran. It's been five years since Esther was chosen as queen. She was chosen. She, she became the queen. You can go back and, and listen if, if you missed and, and catch up. And what we saw the last time, um, last week we talked about faith and freedom and virtue and how those things tie together. If you missed that, I encourage you to catch up on our podcast or um, online on our YouTube channel. Uh, you can catch up there. Um, but what we saw the last time we were in the series a couple weeks ago was Haman, the Agagite. He rises to power. And he's a descendant of the ancient enemy of the Jewish people, the Amalekites, the very first nation that that came out and fought against Israel after God brought them through the Red Sea and and they were heading towards Mount Sinai. And so there's all this drama introduced into the the series. As you see this guy who's a direct, uh, he's a descendant of the king of the Amalekites. And now um, this nation that tried to destroy Israel, um, this evil villain figure comes to light here in the person of Haman, and he enters the scene. And Mordecai, 
who's another key figure here, Esther's cousin, who's like her adopted father. Her, her adopted father, Mordecai, is, is working at the, the city center, the civic center. They call it the gate of the city. And everyone's supposed to bow down to this Haman. But Mordecai refuses to bow. And instead of Haman just choosing to punish him because his pride's been hurt, to punish Mordecai, he comes up with an evil plot to annihilate the whole Jewish race in every corner of the Persian Empire including back in Jerusalem. And so we see these echoes um, of many times in history, actually, where people have risen up and tried to destroy the people of God. And so in the midst of this scene um, of just sheer terror and fear, the king's signet, um, he, he king can't even be bothered to uh, find out what people group he's about ready to destroy. And he doesn't know his, his wife, the queen, happens to be one of them. But he just gives his signet ring over to Haman and says, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. Do what you want to do. And they stamp this law that cannot be revoked in Persia, and they send the messengers out, and people everywhere are in a state of shock. And that's where we come to in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says this, When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. This is a, a universal sign of just complete mourning in this time. And he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. See, this is a very serious thing. They realize their, their lives are about ready to be extinguished and wiped out. And there's really nothing they can do about it. And, and all over the community, other people are in shock that, you know, their neighbor, their shopkeeper, their friend down the street that their kids play with, you know, they're, they're Jewish people, they're good people, but nobody steps up as far as we know and says, wait, stop, this is ridiculous because everybody is scared to death that their life will be taken because that's the culture that they live in. And so the people more knowing... Um, Unless there's an act of God, all, all hope's gone. But they call out to God, and that's what you see in here. And there's this cool thing. The author of the book of Esther puts this little phrase in that, that in the English is uh, fasting and weeping and wailing. And it would bring the mind of the reader back to the prophet Joel, who, who tells the people, hey, fast and weep and mourn in, in, in front of the Lord, and, and perhaps he will have mercy. This was before the exile. Of course, the people don't do it at that point. But here you see this connection where the people corporately come together, and now they're in exile, and they're wondering, has God abandoned us? And they turn, and they pray, and they fast, and they weep before God and ask God to move. Verse 4, when, the eunuchs, or when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So she finds out her, 
her uh, adopted dad, her cousin Mordecai, is out there just weeping in sackcloth and ashes. She's, she can't communicate. For five years, um, we believe that she has been separated. She hasn't seen Mordecai, but they communicate through messengers. But she's in this, like, Kardashian bubble um, lifestyle in the palace with no social media accounts. She can't, get, she can't get word out, uh, so she has to send messengers back and forth, right? But she's living in the lap of luxury, and so, so she thinks, I'm, gonna, I'm going to send my, my best. Clearly, he's, he's sad because he's, he's in these awful clothes, and so I'll send him some, some, my best Kardashian outfit out there and let him put that on. Um, he wouldn't do that. What? I don't even know what the brands are these days, right? Calvin Klein, that was like 20 years ago, wasn't it? I'll send him the best outfit. And that way, you know, clearly something's wrong here. She's in a bubble. She doesn't get it, right? She sends a gift, but it doesn't actually bring any comfort at all. Verse 6. And so Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text for, of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So Esther over here, five years after her marriage to the king, she's in, you know, the king's harem. She's the queen. She's living in the lap of luxury. She's in this insulated bubble. She didn't have a clue what's happening outside. She's just, you know, going and getting her manis and petties and all that stuff, you know. And they're, they're fanning her and handing her grapes, you know. She's got a spa session that day. And all of a sudden, life shifts in an instant, doesn't it? All of, the, all of a sudden, everything changes. Verse 9, so Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Can you imagine being Esther in that moment and, and getting this news that, that every, everyone you loved growing up, those closest to you, everyone in your whole people group is about ready to be annihilated and you're clueless, and all of a sudden, in the midst of just this busy life as, you know, the queen and all this luxury and all this distraction, everything shifts in an instant. Life gets serious really quick. And she has a decision to make. And I'm sure she's just reeling, trying to figure out, like, all of this. And here's what she says in verse 10. It says, then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. You see what's happening here? This, this is a serious situation because Mordecai calls on her. Are you going to stand up? Like, this is certain death. We're all going to be annihilated unless you do something about this. Go beg for the lives of your people before the king. And she's like, I can't. 
It was actually a law that was written, you know, by, by a previous king. And we see about this in Herodotus, uh, the history books. We see this, this law that was put into place. And no one, the king had seven friends, they call them, in his inner circle, advisors. These were the seven guys that could come in unannounced at any point and, and just pop in and say hi and, and talk to the king. But if you wanted an audience with the great king and you weren't one of those seven people, including the queen, you had to actually uh, petition, do an official petition for an audience with the king. One of these guys had to deliver it to him, and there was an official procedure to go through. If you just burst into the king's presence, you're dead. And so there's a real good chance. And she says, and the king hasn't called me for 30 days. Clearly, some of the initial romance of the marriage, you know, the whole beauty pageant thing. Oh, man, she's my queen. I love her. Um, the thrill. The thrill's gone, right? Some of the early infatuations worn off. She's like, I haven't even seen the king in 30 days. Remember, this, this dude had a harem of hundreds. We can't even imagine this in our society today, right? But this is the, this is the culture. And so there's a very real chance. When she says this, it's, it's not like, oh, come on. He'll extend the scepter to you. No, you remember he banished Vashti after um, his previous queen. After in a drunken, you know, lustful thing, he tells her to come out and um, show herself off in front of all his drunk buddies. He banishes her, right? Who knows? Clearly, he's, he's cooled off a little bit towards her over the last five years. What if he's got some new young thing in his harem and he's, he thinks uh, she'd make a better queen? Esther's thinking, this is very likely if I do this, I'm dead. This is a, this is a likely thing. If somehow it fits the whims of the king, I'm a dead woman, she's thinking. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. This is so profound what Mordecai says. Because throughout history, the, the temptation, anytime there's, there's a fear of stepping up and doing something right that may cost us, the temptation is always to shrink back and go, it's not worth it. I'll be fine. It'll work out. And Mordecai says here, and it's this profound thing of actually faith, but then also this caution in this warning. And he says, well, if you, if you don't step up, I believe God is going to still move in this situation, to deliver until he'll raise somebody else up because he's shown us. He brought, you know, the, the prophecies. He brought the people back to the, to, the, to the land. I know we're still here in the empire, in Susa. But there's this remnant back there, and they're, they're rebuilding the temple. They're tr- struggling. I think God's going to do something about that. But the consequences will be very real for you and for everyone you love. 
And see, this, I mean, throughout the course of history, there's, there's profound examples of this. Throughout, as the Third Reich, during, during the Nazi, uh, during, you know, prior to World War II, as the Third Reich came to power, there were many good people who disagreed with what was going on, and yet they remained silent because they were scared with great reason. They were scared for their lives. So they, they stayed silent, thinking it'll be okay. And, you know, many of those people ended up losing their lives anyway and losing those they loved anyway. In fact, there's a pretty famous uh, pastor. He lived around the time of Bonhoeffer, who Bonhoeffer ended up standing up, speaking out, and giving his life. But there's this other famous bon, uh, pastor that was in prison. And early on, he actually, he thought, Third Reich, this is going to be a great thing. He had fought in World War I and going to restore the greatness of the nation. And then as, as, this, as this began happening um, in, under the Nazis and they, you know, they started hauling people off to jail and started trying to control the churches and what the churches said, he said, whoa, 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 whoa. And they ended up arresting him in 1937 and throwing him into prison. His name is Pastor Martin uh, Nymuller. He's a Lutheran pastor. And, and he spent three and a half years in solitary confinement in one concentration camp, and then they moved him to Dachau, where he was uh, in prison until 1945. And here's his statement. is He sort of, um, after the war, he ended up leading the German people kind of in a corporate repentance for participating. So many people that just went along with what the Nazis did for, for participating. And, and he wrote this famous poem that described the sentiment of so many people in Nazi Germany. And, and here's what it is. It says this, first they came for the communists. And I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists. And I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. And I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak for me. And it speaks to this, this tendency humanity has to shrink back and think of right here and right now, what's the easiest, least, you know, for my life, what costs the least? What's the safest thing I can do? How can I preserve my life right now in this moment? How can I preserve my, my reputation if I speak into that? If I stand up and let my views be known, I might get canceled, right? Speaks into this idea. If I engage in this area, that's nah, just not worth it. If I let my faith be known or stand for my faith in my, in my workplace, uh, it's just not worth it. I'm just going to keep silent. I'm going to keep quiet. So many people, this is, this is the way, I mean, honestly, look at your life. How many times have you really felt like you were supposed to engage or you're supposed to speak to somebody, but there was this thing, and, and it wasn't uh, you were scared of, you know, being hauled into a concentration camp, probably. You thought they're going to they're gonna think less of me. Or this may cost me a promotion. And so instead of standing for the right thing in a moment, um, you kind of shrunk back. Or instead of speaking up and, you know, you just felt that thing where God was just prompting you to pray for somebody or, or, or share your faith. And it was like, nah, that's a little uncomfortable. I'm not going to go there. So you shrink back. 
I mean, sometimes it's, you know, we talk about Germany and these things and the stakes seem so high that it's like, oh yeah, well that's, that would never apply to me. See, Mordecai knew something here. He knew that courage was the only way forward. He tells Esther, hey, guess what? You have an opportunity to do something here. Or you can shrink back in fear. But don't think that by staying silent, somehow you're not going to suffer. Your loved ones are not going to suffer. Courage is the only way forward. And fear will hold you back. But the fear that you are experiencing and allowing to control you will actually come upon you. Such a profound statement he makes. And then he goes on, and he says this famous statement, which we named the series after. And it's this, and who knows, but you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And again, echoing the prophet Joel, who knows? Joel says, maybe, you know, it's this phraseology from Joel chapter 2. It says, call out to God. Who knows? He may turn and have mercy and compassion, even though he's told you he's going to send you into exile. And so the, the message from Mordecai is, who knows? This may be God's plan. He may have put you in this place. You thought it was all by accident. I mean, you you just had the, the fortune of being um, extremely beautiful, and you were chosen by the king, and up to this point, life just felt like it was happening to you. You didn't control the fact that, you know, you're an orphan, and but then um, I adopted you, and so you had a good upbringing, but then, man, this happened. This wasn't your plan either. You, you, you wanted to get married, have kids, and all of a sudden, you're thrown into being drawn into the king's harem, not knowing if you'd see him one night and live out the rest of your life alone and never see him again because you wouldn't be seen again by the king unless he called for you by name. And now, you found yourself in this amazing position of being queen, and, man, it's, it's full of luxury. It's a, it's a good life. You've got the you know, the beauty treatments and the, the la- they carry you around on that cool lounge, you know, and fan you and all that. You've got that all. But don't think that somehow you're safe because you're here. Maybe, just maybe, you're in the place that you're in. God has positioned you. Up till now, you just sort of were passive as life happened to you. And he says, I want to offer you the idea that maybe God actually puts you in the place so that this moment you can move forward in courage and you can make a difference. And you, maybe God wants to use you. Not that he needs you, and that's what Mordecai clearly um, communicates before this. I believe God will get the job done without you, but it's not going to go well for you if you don't step into the calling that God has for you. God can still get it done. That's an important thing to remember. God can still get the job done without you. It's not all dependent on you. But the other important thing to remember is should you choose not to step in and walk in obedience in the things he's calling you to do and have courage in your life, you're going to miss out on the blessing. And there may be some very real things that happen because of it. It may not go so well for your family. 
because of it. There's consequences. There's a principle of sowing and reaping in life. And I'm telling you, sowing into courage, stepping into the thing that he's calling you to do, stepping forward and sharing your faith and praying for people and engaging and living for his kingdom when it's easier not to identify with the people of God, but just to sort of stay silent. And if you don't, Oh, he'll still accomplish his greater purposes in this world, but there's very real chance of collateral damage, both in you and in your life and the blessing you'll miss out on, and in the fact that you may be your friend's only connection to Jesus. You may be in a position you're in in order to, to make a very influent, a real influence in the next generation or in another life. And who knows, he says, who knows? And that's the, the point is you never know unless you risk. Fear always says, oh, don't do that. It's not worth it. And, and, and Mordecai says, who knows? Like, we don't know. She could have walked before the front of the king. Hey, spoiler alert, the story ends well, okay? So, and like I said a couple weeks ago, the book's been out a while. You should have read it already, you know? But here's the thing, you don't step into that, you never know. You may fail at the thing you step into, but you may never know what stepping into that course of action will actually accomplish or, or how it will position you for the next thing God's called you to do. You may, you may never know. My, these, these guys came and knocked on my dad's door and, uh, in college. They were with uh, Crew now. It's called Crew Ministries. It used to be called Campus Crusade. And they shared the gospel with him. And he, and he listened to him and then said, get out of here, basically. Those guys left. Later that night, he got down on his knees and gave his life to Jesus. He's been in ministry for years and years and years and years. I don't know if those two guys to this day know the impact they had in my dad's life. I'm, I don't think they do. Or the people that have been impacted in... in 40-some years since then. And, and you may not know right now, but that's the point. Who knows? You don't know unless you, unless you try. You don't know unless you move forward with courage and do the thing God's calling you to do. You don't know that. And I love that Mordecai here is, you know, he's a father figure. And he's the older generation. And listen to this. If you are a more seasoned person in the room, you have the ability to speak courage into those younger than you. And you never know the impact that's going to have. We're working with our men's and, and, and ladies' ministries here um, at developing. We've got some great things in progress and in motion of developing discipling programs where those that are older can just do life with those that are younger and be a voice in their life and an influence to walk with Jesus. And if you're in a more seasoned generation, we need you to engage. We have a value around here. It's called Who's Next?, and I don't care, you know, whether you're, you're graduating from high school or you're thinking about those, um, you know, that are maybe just starting out middle school. Are you thinking about those in the next generation? You're, you're in college. Great. Are you thinking about those younger? You're, you're, you're in midlife. Well, who are you looking down to that's just starting out with kids 
and you go, you know what? <laughs> I can speak to that. We've been there. It's hard. Hang in there. It'll be better in like three years. Not always that encouraging when it like sleeping through the night. That was the thing for me. I was like, sorry, I have no encouragement for you right now. Took us like five years. Just hope it goes better for you, right? <laughs> no, but seriously, there's, there's that opportunity to speak and encourage someone and go, man, I've been right where you are. It's going to be okay. Hey, stand up and walk with Jesus in that thing. It's going to be worth it. You think God's calling you to do that, but you're scared? Come on, you can do it. Walk into it. When we were praying about starting the church, I had um, an older friend of mine. And looking back, uh, I don't know how encouraging it was, but it did encourage me, actually. Because he's like, well, what are you scared of? This was before, you know, we... uh, we really had anything going yet. And I'm like, I don't know. I guess just scared of failing. Like, I'll just. And I, I came to this realization that I was, I was really scared of just, like, looking stupid if the whole thing failed. Because at that point, there was no real risk. I hadn't left a job or anything to do this thing, right? And he goes, well, God's called me to do plenty of things that failed. I'm like, well, thanks, Steve. <laughs> But his point was, you don't know unless you step into what God's calling you to, right? And even if it fails, there may be something that God is teaching you in the process, or there may be one or two lives, like, you know, they, they shared Jesus with my dad, and it, it, it didn't go so well, right? But it did. They just didn't know it. And that's the point, is we don't know. When God calls you to do something, when God prompts you to get to something that he's placed on your heart, you got to step into it. And you're going to be scared every single time. Man, later on, and I know I tell this story a lot, but it's just, you know, part of what God's done in our lives. When when we had to decide, are are we going to risk and go for this thing or give up on on the dream? And there was no money, and we didn't know how we were going to, you know, where the salary was going to come from or anything. And we knew, if I chose security in this moment, I will regret it forever. And so we stepped in, and I'm so thankful. Look at those baptisms and the things that God's done. And those of you that have gone and done things in different areas of the world and ministering with our kids and youth, people following Jesus, building houses in Mexico. Um, our church has been able to, you know, plant churches in Myanmar. And I'm so thankful that I didn't shrink back in fear in that moment. And some of you have something and, and it may not feel like a big deal in your life, but you have something that God's calling you to step into. You need to pay attention. Maybe it's something, um, maybe it's something where it's like it's a public service thing that you just feel called to serve. We have people in our, in our church that stepped in and chose to serve their community in various ways for the right reasons. Not for the money, not for the prestige, but because they had a heart to serve and are in significant places of influence in our community. Maybe God's calling you into one of those places. I have a good friend that because j- just decided I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna run for school board because I care about kids in our community for the right reasons. It's a good thing. Maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's just that like I'm gonna I'm gonna. God is prompting me to go and speak to that neighbor, just to be kind, to start this thing. Like there's this group in the community I feel called to serve. But I just, ah, I'm scared. I don't know. It's going to be a lot of work. It's going to require, you know, an extra evening of meetings. Um, 
maybe I'm called to, to share Jesus in my workplace, to, to engage spiritually, and you're just like, I don't know. Maybe God has positioned you in that specific place for that time and for that place, and he's called you. And you never know. And some of you, you won't find out until eternity the impact you had. Because you'll look back and go, well, I know God called me to do that. And I stepped into it. And either it just didn't seem like it worked out the way I thought it would. But I feel like I was faithful. Good job. Well done. Well done. Defining moments in your life. Sometimes you just miss them because you're so busy or you shrug it off. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and saying, I want you to step into this. Are you going to listen? Are you going to respond? Are you going to go pray for that neighbor or with that neighbor or that coworker when, when that uncomfortable thing comes up and they, they share with you that big thing that's going on in their life? Are you actually going to open your mouth and go, well, I follow Jesus. Why don't you come to church with me? Why don't you engage? Let, let's just pray for you in this moment. Can I just pray for you right now? I know it feels awkward, but that's okay because I believe really God is real and he can do something. You don't have to know the right words. It could be like sound really dumb because your mouth's going to be, you know, you're going to be all nervous, right? So it's like, I, I, I believe in Jesus and he could do something. That's good. Because it's not you accomplishing it. It's God working through you. He wants to use you to minister. Sometimes it's, it's going to be speaking truth to somebody in a kind and loving way, truth and grace together. But speaking truth instead of just staying silent. And it may be the truth you speak into somebody's life if you do it in a way that is kind and gracious and doesn't drive them away. If you speak to them in a way that's kind and gracious, it may be the truth that you plant in somebody's life that alters the course of their life and causes them. And, and they, may, they may completely ignore you in the moment and blow you off. Right, parents of teenagers? Like, you remember, your parents told you some things, and you're like, eh. And then you thought about them. Maybe it was weeks later, a year later, and it's like, oh, yeah, they were right. And it changed the direction of your life. When truth spoken with grace and love can alter the course of somebody's life. And who knows? Maybe God has positioned you in this place with the people around you for such a time is this. And so Esther's in a defining moment. Is she going to identify? Remember, she's hidden her identity up to this point. Is she going to identify with the people of God and put it all on the line and risk? Or is she going to stay silent and hope she can save her own skin as this tragedy and genocide unfolds? And I love it. Because in Esther, you, you get this picture of this girl that kind of, from all we can see, just sort of went with the flow up to this point. And, and the reason this book is named after Esther is because of the character development you see in her life. You see a girl that at first, all we really know about her is she's good looking. But in this moment, she's given a chance and an opportunity and it's the development in her life, it's the character then in her, her life that changes the whole course of this story and of history, that ends up preserving the line of, of Messiah. Now, God would have got it done another way, right? But the book wouldn't have her name on it. 
You probably would have never heard of her. This was the defining moment for her. Verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And so she says, I know I, I can't do this. She's not arrogant. She's scared to death. And what does she do? She says, I, I need, we're going to cry out to God. And not just that. I'm asking all of you to pray. She understands in this point she needs community. And you, for, for the thing God's calling you to do, to make it through this Christian life, you need community in your life. You need people around you who can pray for you, who can support you. Don't think you can just do this all alone. You're not that strong. I'm not either. You need people around you to support you, to disciple you, to encourage you, to counsel you. Wise counsel on the decisions you're making, not just rash decisions. And so Esther, in this moment, she goes, I know what I got to do, and I'm scared to death, and I'm going to call on everybody to pray for me and fast because it's all on the line. She recognizes, you know, there's a powerful thing when leaders remind people to call out to God. A few weeks ago, I shared about the time when the Civil War wasn't going very well, when Lincoln called the nation together to publicly fast and pray and humiliate themselves, basically calling out to God. And it was a turning point in the course of the war. And think of how different history could have gone had that gone differently. And so she calls this, this fast, and, and she asks people to pray. And prayer changes things. Verse 16, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I, I love the, the composure she has here, the realization. Because she says, okay, I'm not going to do this alone. You fast, you pray, let's call out to God. And when that's done, I'm, I'm, I'm going for it. She made up her mind. This is a defining moment. And the first thing you have to do is make up your mind that you're going to say yes to the thing that God's calling you to do, that you are going to walk forward in courage and not fear. And then you better make sure you are getting prayer and you are praying and you're dependent on God calling out to him. And then she says, I'll do it. I know it's against the law. I know that could mean I lose everything. If I perish, I perish. You know, there are things more valuable in life than life itself. And this is something I think in, in a culture that by and large so many people have walked away from, from God and the reality of eternity, that this life isn't all that there is. And because of that, there's an incredible amount of fear that people have. There are things more valuable. There's things worth living for that are more valuable than saving life itself. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom. 
Uh, even, even when you look at our country, you know, the history of our, of our nation is people who sacrificed to the, to the risk of their lives. People who stood up in, in World War II. You remember the phrase, the famous phrase by Patrick Henry, right? Give me, give me liberty or give me death. There's people who believe that there was something, that future generations and influence were worth more than just saving my skin today. There's, there's a song, Oh Beautiful, you know this song, right? Oh Beautiful for Heroes Proved in Liberating Strife, who more than self, country loved, and mercy more than life. And there's something in us that, that, that rises up when we see people heroically give their lives or risk their lives, right? Because we know there's something good and right about that. If you're over 30, I'm, I bet you remember exactly where you are the morning of 9-11. And you probably remember the, the image of those first responders going into their almost certain death. It's inspiring. And that, that's just in the natural realm. Think of, think of the, the millions of people that have risked their lives to spread the gospel around the world. Last century, people like Jim Elliott, who flew into these Amazon tribes to bring the gospel to some of the most ignored and overlooked people in the world, and yet it meant enough to him that he would go in and give his life. I, I have friends that I know, or people that I know that worked alongside back during, uh, when, during, during the Cold War. Um, Brother Andrew is this guy that smuggled Bibles into, into Russia. I've got a friend that was they did that on a DTS outreach. And people give their lives. In China, still, underground churches meet people, meet together as they're called to do by God at the very risk of their lives. There's people being persecuted, millions of people being persecuted around the world for their faith. And yet it's worth it. It's worth it, and yet so many times our thinking is just safety and comfort. We're really insulated because we've had it so easy for so long. And yet I, I, I think there may be a time coming where it won't be so easy to be a follower of Jesus. And, and I think it's best to prepare in your heart if that day ever comes where you stand with that. Are you going to identify with his people? Are you going to follow him? Are you going to live for something more than yourself? And, and then the question comes really that I think if we did a show of hands, we would all admit that there's things worth dying for in life, and the question comes to us, why aren't we living for them more? So many times it's really not a question of if, we, if there's adverse consequences. It's a question of, are people going to think less than me? Am I going to feel awkward? Standing up for Jesus, identifying with Jesus, sharing Jesus, living for Jesus, making decisions in my moral life that I know um, I look a little strange in this work circles or school circles, and yet this is what Jesus, how Jesus is calling me to live. 
Am I going to do it? Am I going to do it? Verse 17, so Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. There are things more valuable in life than physical life itself. You would admit that there are things worth dying for in life. Are you living for them? I want to close by telling you this one scripture that Jesus said this in Luke. He said this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Do you realize, I mean, if we did a show of hands, saving our lives, we would all sign up for that. I would. That's a natural instinct in all of humanity, right? And Jesus tells us something very profound here. And that's this, that, that you, we all want to save our lives, but you're still going to lose it at some point. I checked the, the latest statistics on getting out of this planet alive, you know, unless Jesus returns, you know. It's pretty close to zero. And Jesus brings this profound point up. You're going to give your life for something. He says this, for whoever wants to save their lives will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. That there's a way to live your life now that has eternal significance and eternal value and (laughs) eternal joy. Are you living into that? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. And so many people, in a, in a pursuit to gain everything that the world has to offer and the prestige and not speak up for what is right and, and not stand up for Jesus, end up losing a very real part of who God has created them to be. What good is it for someone to gain everything and yet lose the essence of what it means, their very self? You can choose to say no to Jesus or to follow Jesus and trust in him. I want to invite Winston up. We're going to close with a song. So many times, fear is the thing that holds you back. Fear is the thing that holds you back. And I want to encourage you. What is the thing that he's calling you to do? Are you listening? Are you just so busy that you're not even paying attention? That you may be completely missing defining moments in your life where God wants to use you to accomplish something significant. Is there, is there an area that you just feel his prompting to move into, to step into, to be more bold in, to... to to stand up for um, the next generation and to pour into a life. And, and it's either fear or comfort or just not wanting to look strange that's keeping you from doing that. Are you going to step into that? Or are you going to risk missing out on the very thing God has positioned and placed you in life to accomplish? I hope and I pray that we will be a church that steps into the things 
that God is calling us to. Full of grace and love and truth, bringing his good news to those around us, sharing his love, impacting our community for the better. It takes people that want to engage, that will engage. I want to encourage you, if there's an area in your life where fear or apathy is holding you back, would you deal with that? Would you confess that to the Lord? And if you're here and you're just on the fence because you don't know if it's worth it to follow Jesus at all, let me say, eternity hangs in the balance for you. Trust in him for your salvation. You can't earn it on your own. Call out to him as we close with this song and say, I trust you fully for my salvation, not church attendance or religion. I trust you and what you did for me when you died and rose again. And because of that, I want to live my life for you. That's the most important decision you could make today. Would you stand? Let's sing, and then I'll come back up and pray for you.